What is happening here? I got Kieran Vengavetti on, who is the founder and CEO of Blue Sapphire, bootstrapped from zero to three million in ARR after being a technical lead at multiple Fortune 500 companies, Fortune 100 companies actually in the cybersecurity space, uh, has a really unique open source model and decided to take capital after they grew to a certain point. So love, love, love his bootstrapping story, his background, and how he made it happen. You're not going to want to miss it. Check it out. How do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions, and this show is the answer. Welcome, everybody, to the Scale Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley, and I have a very special guest with me today. I have Kieran Vangavetti, who is currently the founder and CEO of Blue Sapphire Technologies. Uh, basically, something really cool that Kieran's been doing. He's got over 24 plus years in leading cybersecurity practices for multiple Fortune 100 companies. On top of it, something really cool about Blue Sapphire is they have an ROI exceeding over 400%. Um, really interesting solution coming down. Kieran, welcome. Happy to have you on the show, man. Thank you. Happy to be here, Ryan. Yeah, yeah. I, lo- I love chatting with you in advance. Um, just a little, I didn't mention this in the intro, but it is impressive that over the last three years, you've run uh, three marathons. So I got to give you some props for that now that we're on live. Um, I'm not going to say his age, but he's close in age to me. So that's a, that's, <laughs> that's a big deal, right? So anyways, before we get too deep in terms of what Blue Sapphire is doing right now and kind of what your journey is, uh, because it's really interesting, I want to share it. Let's do a real quick revenue rundown. So, Kieran, where are you guys at now in terms of your ARR? So, we're at 3 million ARR right now, and we're looking at growing at 200% for the next two years. Nice. Okay, 200% next two years. What's your primary go-to-market strategy in terms of growing that revenue to, to get to that 200% in the next two years? Obviously, North America is our key focus area in terms of go-to-market. and uh, we. Our technology backend, right? We're a SaaS provider for cybersecurity and complete security operations center, unifying the entire stock operations, both with response remediation along with detection and prevention. So uh, we work through service providers, mostly managed security service providers, and help them provide MDR services and XDR services to their customers. Um, we take care of the technology platform. They can take care of the human side of it the monitoring and other things. Um, and that has been a very successful mantra for us. Uh, after working with a lot of uh, research organizations like Gartner and Forrester, we realized that majority of the SME market that we are hyper-focused on is looking at security as a service, not just IT as a service, but security also is moving into a consumption-based service model uh, where organizations are focusing on value rather than trying to build a skill themselves. And it makes a lot of sense for us to go to the service providers. Okay, excellent. So just to, to recap that, what I hear you saying is, it's basically like a platform, you're working through, through partners for the services. So it's more of like a partner-led go-to-market motion, if you will. Or are you kind of attacking the market on your own as well? So uh, as we, though we realize that, you know, we are going to the market and our GTM is highly focused on partner-led growth, uh, we very quickly realized that we need to have control of the sales cycle and we can be stuck in the partner-led sales cycle. 
So we are actually going to market ourselves. And then as the deals are getting closer to closure state, we work with the local partner to foreclosure. Okay. Excellent. And are you doing that through direct reach out, um, outbound? Like what's the primary strategy that you leverage for that? So until recently, before our capital raise, it was more by word of mouth. But now we're doing a lot of outreaches using uh, expositions and, uh, uh, you know, uh, campaigns. Now we're slowly starting to build uh, cybersecurity communities. So and increase the amount of content we have both. Uh, out there on the internet and on our website in terms of thought leadership. Uh, the idea is to establish ourselves as one of the thought leaders in the space rather than make too much noise and bombard email boxes. That that no longer works. Okay, excellent. And how large is your team right now? So we are 58 people today, uh, growing to 80 by end of March, um, and pretty much will probably stay stable till the end of the year. Um, okay. And probably next year, we'll start growing to another 120 people. Wow. Next year, 100, another 120 people? Yes. Woo. And what side of the business is that going to be on? All that growth. It's a big, big growth lever for next year. So the big growth lever, I mean, if you look at it, where we are, we're, we're expecting to be at 8 million end of this year. And we need to grow to about 16 million by next year. A lot of that will be uh, coming out of um, services. Uh, and if you look at a lot of partners in the U.S. and a partner-led growth in the SMB sector, they do not have 24 by 7 for security services. And we intend to support them with a back-end operating out of uh, India. So we'll follow the Sun model, if you will. Right. So the day, daytime services are delivered in locally in the U.S. and the nighttime monitoring and everything happens remotely. So that side of the business we see growing, and I think that is one of the demands we keep constantly getting into from our partners today is how can you help us be more capital efficient and, you know, uh, at the same time, uh, closer to our customer. So the 12 hours in the day is supported locally by the partner and 12 hours, the remote monitoring in the night for the UAS is provided by remote and uh, it still works through the partner but we white label it for the partner. Okay. Unique model. Okay. So can you walk us through your solution real quick in, in two to three sentences? So we have a understanding of exactly how it's kind of put together and who it serves specifically. Sure. So if you look at security operations center, a lot of time is lost in not just uh, reacting to alerts, but also trying to triage these alerts and understand which of these are false positives. And uh, because of the way the siloed nature of tools exist today, um, triaging and uh, identifying alerts takes a lot of time. In many cases, days, if not hours. So our tool actually spans the entire stack, cybersecurity stack, all the way from network layer to um, user layer, to endpoints, to memory data centers, switches, cloud, and it can easily triage all of these alerts in seconds and read out all the false positives using artificial intelligence. Now, the idea behind the whole tool was to be able to provide the analyst an end-to-end view whenever he's looking at an alert as to uh, what happened from the beginning, where did the problem start, and is it actually an attack or is it actually a false positive? A lot of this is interactive in terms of the system learns as it goes, 
if an analyst is consistently marking something as a false positive, the system learns from it and, you know, reduces those kind of alerts unless it sees an anomaly in those kind of alerts. So all of this is built into the system, but we also have a defenseless framework. Um, sorry, 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 defense framework, which is completely agentless, right? I mean, uh, you, I'm sure you're aware there are a lot of frameworks for attack, like, you know, power exploit, metasploit, um, empire, uh, and so on and so forth. But there's really no framework for defense. And uh, we have to say we are one of the only defense framework available out there that is open source out on GitHub. Um, and, and it's completely agentless. So the bad guys are able to compromise your systems without having to deploy a tool on every single system on your network. It, 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 it is intriguing that nobody has ever thought about actually being able to protect the same systems in the same way. So in essence, we actually emulate similar behaviors like an attacker, but primarily for defense. So uh, after we open source our stuff on GitHub, um, especially the agentless framework called Blue Genie, we're seeing a lot of feedback from the community asking if they can use it for, you know, configuration management updates, patching, so on and so forth. And the system is designed to be agentless and it can be used for multiple ways. We use it for uh, threat response. There's nothing stopping others from using it for different purposes. But the idea is to keep it uh, as flexible as possible. And, you know, when you look at commercial solutions, mostly you think about a very closed uh, uh, system. Uh, we keep our system completely open, even to the extent that we call our entire data platform as open data platform. The idea behind is that the schemas are open, uh, the system is open, everything is in JSON. So as a service provider or as an end consumer, if you want to do something more than what uh, we are able, we have been offering. You're welcome to do that and you don't have to stumble in the dark to actually make that happen. This comes from my enterprise background where we used to use a lot of tools and we had the in-house capability to build our own scripts. But a lot of the times, the data, where it is held, how it is held, and the backend database architectures of these tools were completely a black box for us and we couldn't actually derive those kind of values. Okay, that's a, I mean that's really interesting that you have it open source like that. So on the agent agentless model as well. I, I mean, does that so two things come to mind when, when you you have that? By the by the way, I am no cybersecurity expert myself, right? That's not that's not my domain of expertise like you. But does that a put you at greater risk for security vulnerabilities? One and two. What about I don't want to say revenue vulnerabilities, but you know, in terms of competitors um, or companies not deciding to use you guys, any areas like that that are major risk uh, with the model? Um, no, we have both an agent and an agentless model, right? I mean, um, the same agent can actually, the agentless model that we use can also be turned upside and say, okay, fine, I want to use this same model as an agent and I need it to be installed on all the machines and it can actually accomplish that too. So for some customers who are very sensitive and they really want the agent-based model, they go for it. The idea behind agentless model is this, right? I mean, we have known enterprise networks for a long time. Um, you'd be lucky if you get a majority of your endpoint tools up to date, even 92% of the time, right? Um, and the attacker is aware of this problem. And the attacker is really going after the low-hanging fruit. He's really not going after the... Uh, castle is really going after the easiest way into the castle. 
right? And that that's that's how you're supposed to look at this and say, okay, fine. If that I know at a given point of time there are going to be eight to ten percent of the systems that are not up to date, and they become my easy target, right? Now, agentless system gets rid of the problem and says, hey, I really don't care whether your endpoint software is up to date or not. I can still respond to the incident on that system and remediate it. Like you could quarantine it, you can suspend the processes, you can do about 70 different activities on that endpoint. And we're one of the only framework that actually can control CPU utilization on the endpoint also. So we can, in cases where, you know, we try to do threat hunting remotely, completely agentless, uh, we don't overwhelm the endpoint like other tools do. Like, you know, there are a bunch of other tools like Velociraptor, so on and so forth, but none of them have any control on how they run on the endpoint. We're one of the most mature frameworks out there where we can decide how much CPU utilization is apt, and so the end user experience is not affected. And sometimes, you know, there are starts in the system that you don't expect. In our case, though we are agentless, if an end system actually restarts, the process continues from where it was left off. So it is pretty persistent in that way. Excellent, man. Excellent. Hello, this is Ryan here. Real quick, if you are enjoying this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment or review. If you want more help or just want to learn more about what the top SaaS CEOs and founders are doing, check out my website at www.ryanstaley.io. Join my newsletter, check out other free content resources I have there, and let me know if you want to scale your business. Now back to the episode. All right, Kieran. So one of the things that I was thinking about was about your journey, right? So you bootstrapped to from zero to three million, and then you took on investment in about two and a half years. How did you make that happen? What did you do? And what were you thinking as you kind of went through that process? So one of the founding things that we always worked on was to ensure that we actually raise a capital efficient organization. So we always believed in being in the black, if you will, right? And we need to be capital efficient. We need to be operating in the positive and understand the ins and outs of how business runs. Um, technology is great, but you should really also know how to operate your business. And one of the best ways to do that is to bootstrap. And uh, we, in the early days, we started off with security services, um, some kind of monitoring services for a few clients. We didn't take on many. We just took on two or three clients that kept us alive. And we've channeled that revenue into product building. And once the product became live, we weaned off the other services. And today we focus completely on product-driven revenue and product-driven services. So um, that was how we arrived at it. And, you know, that helped us understand all the uh, easy capital leaks that usually people run into uh, when they get funded early on, they don't realize how to manage capital efficiently. Um, it gave us an uh, edge on how to manage this capital efficiently. And that's how we were able to raise in a down economy, if you look at it that way. Today, uh, we're talking about a funding winter. And we've been able to raise primarily because investors are able to see that we have run a very capital efficient ship and we have, been, we have had a positive EBITDA all along. 
And that's something uh, I would say, you know, a lot of businesses are not focusing on as they're going because we had this tremendous avalanche of capital that has been flowing in. And uh, if you look at it, you know, last year, about 300 security companies closed down or merged or got acquired. Um, and pretty much all of them have been negative EBITDA. Nobody has been generating positive EBITDA. I know I've been in the Silicon Valley last year for, I think I spent four months in Silicon Valley before we started raising our capital. And the idea was for me to understand, you know, how companies are representing themselves, who are those active investors that we wanted to go to, so on and so forth. And as I met more and more companies, I realized people have raised 15, 20, 25 million on an ARR that's less than 1 million. And I'm like, you've burned through so much cash for so little value. It really doesn't make a lot of sense. Some of them got sold back into their parent companies where they came from, but uh, I really don't see value in that. Um, and we've been very particular about building a positive eat what you kill kind of model. Yeah, I, I mean, that's strong, man. I mean, and that's responsible too, right? Because that's what's going to be viable long term when you do that. So, I, I mean, I think it's amazing. So how long did it take you and how much did it cost to build the original product then? So I think we spent over a million dollars trying to build the original product, but it took us about two and a half years to get to a state where we could uh, get rid of all the other services and just only focus on product-led growth. Good for you, ma'am. Good for you. So, so it sounds like things have been going good. You got the investment. What is your single biggest challenge growing the company right now? Like, what are you running into as a, as a, a big barrier to making that happen? Um, at every single stage, right? I mean, we have different challenges and, you know, uh, today we have capital, but again, getting your hands on the skill that is required, um, basically talent is the single biggest challenge. And I think that is not used. We expected that because um, if you look at uh, experts talking about the talent gap, especially in cybersecurity, that has existed for a very long time. So we've been working on that on the back end. You know, we hire people fresh out of college. We could probably take considerable amount of time training these folks and bringing them on board and deriving value and then move on to other companies. But yes, talent shortage is the biggest challenge we usually run into. And uh, we have our own training ways and other HR policies that we have put in place to address that gap. Okay. And are you, when you say talent, uh, are you, is there a specific department? Is it on the, that, or I should say specific roles that are the hardest? Um, see, hardcore development is relatively easier to find. Um, pre-sales or technical sales, that's a role that is usually a little hard to find because people like me who are very technical in nature, rarely go into sales. And that's actually a very, very uh, hard skill to find. Um, and that's usually where we struggle a little bit. And we've been able to cover that with a little bit of training and other things. Yeah. Okay. Excellent, ma'am. How about AI? And I think one of the, I'm sorry. Uh, one of, I just want to make one more point here. So one of the things we also struggle with is getting our voice heard. Um, you would assume that in this day of social media, it is very easy to get a voice heard. But at the same time, it is also very easy to get your voice lost in the noise. And uh, trying to stand out is a very big challenge. I'm sure you understand that. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, so it's funny. So we were talking about this a little bit before the show. And, and so 
one of the things that I've found helps people the most with that is like having their own show, right? Like, or having your own podcast, or it could be a show on different social channels. Cause if you, if you cut up the content the right way, you could start to really, really grow the distribution fast. Right. And so it's a cost effective way to grow um, with a low lift, as long as you know how to structure the process the right way. And the real interesting thing is too, is like, like, and I, I've helped companies do this, but like you could get, once you start getting going, like you could get access to anybody, which is like C-levels at the biggest companies in the world, if that's mm-hmm. who your target is, right? Or mid-market, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, because of the fact that no matter what it is, people want to promote themselves, they want to promote their own company, right? So it's like a built-in value lever, which is one of the reasons why I love the podcast is because I can serve people and I'm like naturally fascinated just on like, how people did what they did, how they're growing their companies, like all those things. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's something I've talked about a lot in private, but not in public. So, um, so I could, I could see why you would say that because, because you're definitely not the first person that's come up and, and mentioned that it's, it's a, it's a common thing that kind of comes, you know what I mean? So, um, so to shift gears a little bit, right. Cause that's, that's where we're going and we're getting close on time. How are you leveraging AI in your business right now, whether it be on the product side or to grow revenue? And we'd love your feedback on that. So, I mean, um, AI seems to be ubiquitous right now. So uh, it is used in multiple areas in our own product. Um, but what's more interesting is I'm starting to see and love how it is being used on the marketing side now, right? I mean, uh, especially with the conversational AI getting all more common, um, and getting all the traction today, like chat GPT and uh, so on and so forth, we see content is no longer, uh, or rather I should say content has become commodity. And podcasts like this are going to actually become the cream de la of the uh, content engine, right? I mean, this cannot be generated. Our interactions that we're having, sharing that brain share today that we are discussing on this podcast, this cannot happen using a conversational AI. So it's very interesting how this all is starting to play out. And we are also looking at, you know, yes, we understand how popular conversational AI is getting and what role it has to play in terms of security operations and how do we actually use conversational AI to better interact with the system, right? A big challenge of any vendor is getting people trained on this product, right? We all believe that we will build the system. It doesn't matter whether it's Palo Alto speaking here or FIRI or Apple Sapphire. We all believe that we have the system to operate, but when it translates onto the analyst on the other side, you, there can be so many. That's when you realize there's so many people who can think so differently um, that a single training model doesn't work for all of them. Now, if you're able to, able to change all of that using some kind of conversational AI, uh, it rapidly, uh, what do you say, uh, exponentially, uh, derives value out of your system and makes it that much easier for the end consumer to take value out of your system, right? Today, barely, I would say, we are hitting 60% of the value that we already have. Uh, and we're not even barely scratching the surface of what we do. I mean, the kind of data points we collect, uh, how much are we able to provide it back to the end user using UI without too much effort is probably about 60%. With something like conversational AI, if I can use free speech to 
ask questions and have a conversation with a product like Blue Sapphire, uh, the capability for an analyst to derive more value uh, increases rapidly without him necessarily having to possess those kind of skills or analytical skills in terms of saying, hey, I want you to rack and stack data so and so format so I can see who are the outliers. Instead, I can just go back to the system and say, I want to see who are the outliers, who are the people who use this specific process uh, the least amount of times in this time frame. Makes for a very easy uh, delivery point at that. If you actually have to con- uh, translate that into UI and deliver it using an analytical platform, it can get pretty complex pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, those are really good points. It, it all depends on the level of complexity and the specifics that you're kind of working on. So, I mean, I've seen that personally. I, I've spent a lot of time on ChatGPT and, and trying to master it. And the, I mean, right now where it's at, and I, from the research I've done, this is going to massively change and go to multi, multimodal AI probably between the next six to 12 months where you can integrate voice, video, graphics, and text. Um, and they can integrate and basically work off of each other, which is, I think that's going to be wild. It's going to, it's going to be like Jarvis um, with uh, an Iron Man, right? Where you could just basically tell the system what to do and then it'll orchestrate 14 different steps. Um, now, granted, we're not there yet, but from all the experts I'm talking to, that's kind of where folks see it heading. That makes sense. So, Absolutely. And biggest challenge we have with the current generation of this conversational AI is hallucination, right? Um, though it may look like uh, your conversational AI is actually able to think and respond, but it's basically just churning out text to you, right? Um, it looks like it is thinking, but it's actually not thinking. It is just churning out whatever text you have given it and churning out a relative text back to you. Um, but it will be very interesting to see how this evolves and how it actually starts translating um, into thought, right? Uh, I'm I'm really excited for the future. Yeah, I mean, I, so I don't know if you agree with me on this. Not not to go down the rabbit hole because uh, we're almost up on time, but like, I think you know, in our lives, this is probably going to have. I mean, the only one that, in my opinion, could rival it is like the internet, right? That's the whole internet. I think it's going to be it's going to make that big of an impact on the business world and our personal lives over the next twelve to twenty four months faster and in a greater scale than any other event like in our lives. I feel that strongly about it just from all the stuff that I'm hearing and saying, do you, do you think I'm uh, a crazy or B, you know, <laughs> um, there's some, 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 uh, some things that are exciting slash scary about it. What's your thoughts on that, man? So I'm actually um, leaning towards the scary side of it, right? I mean, the internet is a cesspool. Let's all agree to it. There's only 20% of benefit to the internet. 80% of it is just people sharing um, their opinions, right? And if you're actually building an AI that actually reads opinions and believes that to be the truth, it is going to become that much harder to differentiate reality from fake. Fake or, you know, something that's unreal, right? And it's that much easier for it to hallucinate. If you look at the uh, artist models that, you know, AI has been able to generate, Right? And whatever you're asking it to generate, it is generating, say, like a mouse playing a football. The AI actually thinks that is real. It cannot differentiate between a sarcasm and it cannot differentiate between uh, a fake news versus a real news. Right? And uh, the fake news problem that we ran into 
um, the influence that, you know, you could, one could have a political system like an election campaign in the U.S. Um, if that could be altered using some simple bots run on Facebook and Twitter, can you imagine what something like a conversational AI will deduce out of that kind of data, right? So since we do not on the internet have control of the data, we do not have any verification of whether something is true or not. And whether something is not just true or not, whether something is actually public or private, the AI doesn't discriminate. And in those scenarios, and that's what you're using to train your AI today, that's a very scary world. It's a good point, man. It's a really good point. I mean, whether it's public or private or whether it's real or sarcastic, right? Or, you know, not taken out of context. I mean, there's a lot of things that... Um, where this could go sideways, but I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little bit of scariness to it at the same time, man, but uh, we are off on time, Karen. So it was really great having you on the show. Where can people find you? Where can they find out more about blue Sapphire and get that put in their company? Bluesapphire.com is the best way to find a lot of information on blue Sapphire, a lot of content. Uh, we, we can also look up bluesapphire.com on YouTube and a majority of our content is open. So everything about our product is open. So it's on docs.bluesapphire.io. I can directly be reached at kiran at bluesapphire.com. Um, and I respond very quickly to my emails. That's the easiest way to get to me rather than my Twitter handle. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, it was a pleasure having you on the show. I love hearing your perspective. Love how you bootstrap to 3 million. Uh, I mean, just, just a lot of good stuff, man. So thanks for being on, Kieran. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Thank you. All right. And we will see you on the next episode. Thank you for checking out the Scale Up Show. My mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering in revenue growth so they can flip it and create a life of their own design. So if you enjoyed this show, please like, review, share it on social, and more importantly, just share it with a friend. Share it with someone that you think could learn and benefit from what you heard on today. But the more we get the message out, the more people we could help, the bigger the impact we make, and the bigger the community gets, which helps everybody. So once again, thank you for being a loyal listener. I appreciate you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.